Sifter for the ear. News, interviews, reviews, cinema, TV, streaming. Action. Hi, y'all. This is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. He's back. False Negative, an evening with John Waters, is this Sunday, May 1st at 7 p.m. at the Bird Theater. In Brent Baldwin's interview for Style Weekly, he asked if he ever got to see my Dirt Woman documentary, and Waters replied, Yes, I did see it, and it was kind of amazing. She's not real likable in parts. They reveal stuff about her that would make people less likely to finally remember her. So I did like it, because it was warts and all. They did a good job. Melissa Vaughn's interview with Waters airs this Friday at 10 a.m. on WRIR. The role is not large, and when you're opposite Jillian Anderson, the scene is going to be about her. And I knew that it would be, but I sat in that makeup and hair trailer for those hours. The costume fitting was almost as rigorous, so really it seemed to be all about looking and sounding like her rather than understanding her childhood wounds, you know. That's local actor Irene Ziegler talking about playing the wife of President Herbert Hoover on the new Showtime series, The First Lady, which stars Viola Davis as Michelle Obama, Michelle Pfeiffer as Betty Ford, and in the scenes with Irene, Jillian Anderson as Eleanor Roosevelt. We're going to talk about that experience, plus her other screen work, including Terminus on The Walking Dead and being the original voice of GPS before Siri. Sifter Review of the Week Aileen This movie states right up front that it's a fictional story inspired by the life of Celine Dion. Valérie Lemercier co-wrote, directed, and stars as the singer. She portrays her from childhood in Quebec, thanks to weird digital adjustments, to superstardom in Vegas and beyond. This includes some of Dion's most famous songs, performed by Victoria C.O. I've never been a big Celine Dion fan, so I can't speak to the veracity of the bio, but it covers much of the highlights I was familiar with, including her controversial marriage to her much older manager and the Oscar performance for the hit from Titanic. Le Mercier is able enough, but the whole story feels like a Wikipedia account without much emotional depth, even with her struggles. As such, it's more a curiosity as a vanity project for Le Mercier, not Dion. I gave it two out of five stars. Now, Irene Ziegler, you know, I did not realize this until I looked at your IMDb bio, but you were born in Central Florida, and I was born in Florida. I actually wasn't. Um, I grew up in Central Florida. I was six weeks old. I was born in Massachusetts, but my mom went home to have a baby. So, But I did grow up in Florida, and that's very much part of my blood. And I grew up in this little town in the middle named Chiefland. Have you ever heard of that? Nobody's ever heard of it. I have not. It's about an hour outside of Gainesville. That's all I know. Oh, any oranges there? Any orange groves left? Not a lot. Well, my father was a Baptist minister. That's why we were there. So there were Baptists there. (laughs) Okay. Thanks to your dad. (laughs) Imagine that in Florida. So how did you get to Virginia and how did you get into acting? I got to Virginia by applying for a teaching job at Old Dominion University in Norfolk. I was in Michigan at the time, finishing up my graduate studies. I got the job and I was teaching speech and one class of oral interpretation, human communication. So how did you get into theater? Were you one of those little kids from always or did it come later? Nope. I had a divine inspiration. My ninth grade class, for reasons I don't remember, were bused to Sarasota, Florida for a production of The Glass Menagerie in the Oslo Theater. Wow. And I was 
mesmerized. And I just remember thinking that I want to do that. To this day, you know, the glass menagerie just holds a very special place in my heart. Have you ever done either of those roles, Amanda or Laura? I did Amanda in Michigan. I was way too young for it. I'd love to do it again. I had an opportunity locally here in Richmond, but had to drop out because my mother got sick and la la la. Maybe one day. I hope so. So how did you get into screen work? Obviously, you came to Richmond and you did theater for, you've been doing theater for many years here. How did suddenly you get on camera for the first time? You know, you remember the local agents, Liz Marks, Karen Whitmore, and the early movies, Bill W. Sure. That came into town. And there was one where I was pinned to play Mary Todd Lincoln. That was an early movie, the name of which escapes me at the moment. Obviously not the Spielberg Lincoln, a different Lincoln. Alas. But it wasn't until, you know, the Wilmington Studios were erected, the Dino De Laurentiis project there. And I met uh, Mark and Lisa and Finn Cannon, who are still major Academy Award winning casting directors. And it was them who started submitting me. They liked what I had to offer. And so just kind of doing what everybody does. Oh, and I remember back in the day before self-tape, all yeah. the actors would talk about driving, what, four hours to Wilmington for do two lines and then get in right. the car and drive back. Drive four hours back. We did it all the time. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. <laughs> Amen. So what was your first screen role? Um, it was this little known movie called The Lookalike from 1990 that starred Melissa Gilbert from Little House on the Prairie. It was right. a psychological thriller where she encounters her doppelganger. Um, I don't even know what my character was in that movie. I don't remember. I think her name <laughs> Karen. But it, it was a very valuable experience because it was the first time on a set. And I just didn't know how all that worked. And I uh, got some of the terminology down. Obviously, last night, I'm sure we both watched the first episode of The First Lady. And <laughs> your name was mentioned, not not oh, Irene's no, name, but your character's Irene's... name. I'm like, oh, my God, Lou Hoover, Lou Hoover. Hurry, hurry, Mrs. Roosevelt. Lou Hoover is waiting. And I go, oh, here I come. But we're going to have to wait for her for another week, I guess. I know. It sucked. I was like, oh, she's going to be on quick before the episode ends. And then... <laughs> Footnote. This interview was recorded before the second episode dropped, which did feature Irene. So you do play Lou Hoover, who was Herbert Hoover's wife. Right. The first lady from 29 to 93. Well, first, how did you get that role? At Tyler Perry Studios, there's a White House replica there. So that studio certainly is is used whenever they need a White House. So my Atlanta agent submitted me and I auditioned with Mark Joy. He taped me just the usual routine thing where you send your tape, you upload it on Actors Access and the casting director and your agency. And and I got picked and I suspect it was because, you know, I bore a slight resemblance. And as you saw last night, the resemblance to a lot of these characters is impressive. And it is really, oh, that's why I was picked, but I can act too. So that well, that helps. That helps. How big is your part? Do you know how many scenes were you actually in? It is not large. It was a two day shoot, but it may interest you to know that in the first day, all I did was sit in a hair and makeup chair for hours and hours and hours because they wanted to replace my face in a photograph of Lou Hoover and Herbert Hoover, I guess it was on inauguration day where they're walking down the street and, you know, waving to the crowd. And they, you know, had me assume that position with the waving arm in the air and then took my face, which I had just been in makeup for eight hours and superimposed it in that picture. So that was day one. 
Cool. Now, I'm going to be very curious to see if that's even on set. I suspect it's not, but maybe it is. Footnote. Irene was right. It didn't show up. Day two was filming the scenes. I'm in three scenes, I think. And, and as you know, I'm turning the White House over to Gillian Anderson, who plays Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, yeah. So obviously you already answered my one question. It was shot and the whole thing was shot in Atlanta, obviously. Yeah. So what kind of research did you get to do or have to do to prepare to be Lou Hoover? Well, I would love to say that I read everything that was ever written about Lou Hoover, <laughs> but I did not. I did, however, read the Wikipedia entry. <laughs> <laughs> the same research we all do nowadays, isn't it? Well, yeah. Like I said, the role is not large. And when you're opposite Jillian Anderson, the scene is going to be about her. And I knew that it would be. But I must say, I sat in that makeup and hair trailer for those hours. The costume fitting was almost as rigorous. There was a dialect coach on set. So really, it seemed to be all about looking and sounding like her rather than understanding her childhood wounds, you know? Right, so right. I, I felt like I did what I needed to do. How was Jillian? Did you get a chance to interact with her at all as a person or was it just come on, do your lines and cut, we're done? On set, you know, we had some sit down time. We chatted a little bit. The third person in the scene was Clea Duval, who played her personal secretary, but COVID was still raging at that time. Safety protocols were rigid. We weren't allowed to have a lot of chat time. We were wearing, there was somebody there to make sure we were wearing those plastic shields the whole time. So it wasn't really conducive to, you know, nobody asked me to be their best friend. So. <laughs> Surprise guest drop in. Well, it says Dave Gow, but it's not, I don't think it's Dave Gow. Make yourself known. Hey. That looks like John Moon. Ah! <laughs> John Moon is your guest, even though his name says Dave Gow. I don't know what that's about. I know. I'm I'm using Dave Gow's um, Zoom account. Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. There okay. we go. Well, we know Dave, and he's a great guy, so that's okay. Yeah, it is great to see you. It is I, great to see you. It's been, I, I, it's so been at least long. two years. I'm sure it has, easily. Footnote. John Moon has been a local stage and screen actor in Richmond for many years. Do you even remember, John, your first impression of Irene? Maybe it was an audition. Maybe it was on stage. Oh, for goodness sake. Um, I think maybe the first thing was Frankie and Johnny that we did yeah. together. That's the first time I, I remember meeting you is meeting you after we were both cast in Frankie and Johnny. So you, right. did you read to get opposite each other in auditions and then, oh, by the way, you got cast? Or did you find out after audition? I don't even remember the casting process for that, actually. We were picked. Oh, well, maybe that was it. And Bruce Miller was the director. So... Mm -hmm. And that was how long ago? By the way, it's called Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune is the full title of that. Yes. Sorry. That would have been 1991, late 1991. I just had a baby three months earlier. And so did John's wife. Oh, that would be Dylan. And then I directed Irene in a one-woman show, Shirley Valentine. <laughs> yeah. What do you remember about working with her on that? I remember laughing a lot, mostly. Actually, you asked me about a story to tell, and I did think of one. One of my favorite stories to tell about Irene with regards oh, no. to theater. Oh, no, you'll like this, I think. Okay, good. <laughs> um, because I, it's always been one of my favorites. This is about celebrating Irene, the actor, and her success in film. But, you know, the thing that I've always loved about Irene is just how smart and good she is on stage. I was working at Theatre Virginia. Irene was in a show called Lettuce and Lovitch with Michael Goodwin. And a little a preface here. 
one of the things that the theater used to do, which was absolutely absurd to me, was they always had corporate sponsors. And the corporate sponsors were allowed to bring all of their employees or as many as they could cram into the theater on like the last dress rehearsal. So the people that had the most invested in this show were probably seeing it at some of its shakiest. Right, <laughs> so right. I always thought it was just a silly, silly thing to do. But we were at a dress rehearsal and I don't know who, who the corporate sponsor was at. And we had all these, you know, fairly drunk employees <laughs> there. Um, I think Irene was on stage in a scene with Michael Goodwin and scenes going along. And then all of a sudden there's this big silence. And I don't know whether it was Irene or Michael. It was totally me. If you've ever been on stage when somebody, you know, either you or your partner go up, it's a little bit like this cloud of gloom descending on you. And you start feeling like the fox that needs to chew its leg off to get out of the trap. <laughs> <laughs> and generally from the audience point of view, you feel it too. You feel that you stress. Feel it, and time just stops. This went on for just a few moments. I'm sure it felt like years to Michael and Irene. But all of a sudden, Irene stands up and walks to the edge of the stage and looks out at the audience and goes, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to live theater. <laughs> line. And then she calls for the line. And I thought it was just, that was so typical of how smart she is on stage. They loved it. They loved it. They almost gave her a standing ovation for that alone, I think. But it was a, a very fun moment and one of my favorite stories about Irene. Is that how you remember it, Irene? I do, but just before marching to the front of the stage, I looked back at Michael and then I said, do you know where I am? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, no, darling, I don't. <laughs> and that's when I said, I got to bust this illusion. You know, off come the masks and it's right. like, here it is. You came before we were ready. You're getting something super special right, right. here. Well, and, and, they, they, and they loved it because they felt like they were in the know then. So There was a line shortly after that incident where I got to say, without danger, Mr. Baldolf, there is no theater. And I turned and I winked at the audience and I got <laughs> And it's like, oh, thank goodness. They love yes, me. They yeah. really John and Irene, how many times have y'all worked together? Do you know? It hasn't been, I mean, we've known each other for a very long time. You know, I'm trying to think if we've had any other onstage experiences together. A couple of shorty things that Bruce Miller would invite us to. And John would, in the past, tape auditions for actors. And so whenever I was auditioning for something, I would go to John to help me and invite his direction for my auditions. And you are irreplaceable, my friend. Oh, stop. Well, we want to thank you for dropping in. It was nice of you to surprise Irene today. Well, I couldn't resist the opportunity to see you because it's, as I say, two years. And this is almost, I'm still not sure if you're 3D yet, but at least I know you're 2D. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll see you and I'll call you. I know you're jumping around a lot, so call me when we can have some lunch. Great. Thank you so much, John, and thanks to Dave Gal for letting us use yeah, his I stuff. Know. Don't tell Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, honey. Bye. That was so fun, Jerry. Thank you so much. Yeah, John, of course, is a great guy, and he was thrilled to do it when I contacted him. Uh, I don't know if there was anything else we wanted to talk about the First Ladies at this point. Well, we watched it last night, and I thought it, yeah. it's it's very well done. It's very dramatic. There's not a lot of light stuff in it. It's going to be a pretty heavy show, it looks like. Yeah. 
And just the whole idea of studying the history of the White House through the eyes of the First Lady. Why hasn't somebody thought of that before? Really? And I think the director, Suzanne Beer, who, if you're not familiar with her work, hello, you need to put some Suzanne Beer in your life. Footnote. Suzanne Beer is a Danish film director known in the U.S. for her Oscar winner, In a Better World. Also, The Bird Box on Netflix, The Night Manager on AMC, and The Undoing on HBO. She was impressive. She was no nonsense. She yelled at me a lot. For what reason? <laughs> just giving you direction? I mean, not, you weren't doing anything wrong, were you? Um, no, just, you know, I am not on a set every day like right. Julian Anderson is. And this is all second nature. To, and I was on, you know, I shared a scene with two stars who, you know, live on set. My instincts are theater instincts, not camera instincts. So when she says, okay, let's just block the scene and see what happens. She's like, why are you moving so fast? Slow down. Or like, no, this is a two shot. Why are you standing there? Follow them, follow them. And I'm like, when somebody else is moving, I'm still, because that's typically how you do it on, on the set. She sure. goes, why are you standing there? She's talking to you from a, finally, she just started telling me what to do, which just was such a relief to me. But I also, you know, felt boneheaded about it because like I said, my instincts aren't as honed as theirs are. And I was just. Well, and, you know, and as, as I know from theater, I mean, the directors tell you where to stand and when to walk across the sure. stage. Not on this thing. And it's fast, man, Jerry. You get one rehearsal. And if you don't get it the first time and you don't say something and then they film it, they were going, I thought you had this. The pressure's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you did anyway. okay, I'm sure. You're pro. I You've did. Been doing I did okay. Yeah. Terrific. I can't wait to see it. So you've done so many TV shows and movies. What are some of the most memorable things you can remember that kind of like were cool encounters, either with an actor or just something that happened on the set? The story I always tell, because it's imprinted now, was when Anne Bancroft yelled at me mm. on the set of G.I. Jane. Footnote. G.I. Jane was a 1997 fictional film starring Demi Moore as the first female in the Navy SEALs. I was just devastated. You know, I was basically just flapping around her, doing what you shouldn't do to a movie star. And I didn't know that I couldn't just sit down next to her and start chatting about things she'd been in and so on and so forth. And, and you know, at some point during the filming, and I was there for several days, she she just kind of blew up at me. <laughs> well, because you were fond being so fondling all over all the time? I, I, fawning over fawning her. Up, yeah, right. So, you know, I wasn't fondling her, no. No, no, no. Fawn, right. Fawning all over her. <laughs> But then you were okay after that, right? She she was nice yeah, to you? Yeah, I learned to keep my distance after that. You know, not act starstruck, basically, is what I was doing. Well, now, of course, some people may recognize you from The Walking Dead, the which, of course, is getting ready to finish up its final season. You were the voice of Terminus when they came into Terminus. Yeah. I remember when that happened. What was that experience? Were you just sitting in a, a booth here in Richmond reading those lines? No, no. Um, I was actually in Atlanta, and... I didn't even get my lines till I was on set. That's how secretive that process is. Wow. They didn't even give me any sides. Um, sides being just as a matter of explanation, your lines. Right. Um, so I didn't even know what I was going to say or or anything like that. The, the nice thing about that experience, which is unrelated to the movie business, is that the second assistant director turned out to be somebody I went to high school and college with and wow. was a dear friend of mine. And so we reunited on that set. 
you know, it was the hottest series on TV at the time. So that was very cool. And I didn't even find out that I was a cannibal. You know how I found out I was backstage at U of R waiting to go on stage. And I was on standby text with my son who was watching the episode. And he texts me and he says, mom, you're a cannibal. (laughs) And then I went on stage. I didn't even know how I fit into the context of the storyline. Right, right. And of course, now people might remember your voice from that, but I have to tell you, and you'll probably remember this story quite a few years ago, myself, my husband and you, we're going to go to see some show out at Hanover Tavern. Uh, Yeah. Remember that? And we drove out and this was when 295 was still kind of newish and we never rode on it. And we were driving down 295, just chatting away, gossiping, whatever. And then I was like, wait, did we miss our turn? Wait, was it this turn? Was it the next turn? And we were freaking out. We didn't know. We didn't want to be late for the show. So I just pulled off in the first exit we got to. She gave me directions and we got back on the road. And then after we got back and we knew we were going the right way, you just quietly from the back, she said, by the way, that's my voice on the GPS. I do remember that. I remember that. I didn't remember saying that's my voice on the GPS, but I certainly remember the GPS was slow to respond. It was the technology was still fairly new and it right. was dropping out and you were having a hissy fit. <laughs> and and so I just waited Mom? like you said for everything, for everything to calm down. I go, by the way, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that gig happen? The company name was Televigation. They were an early tech company specializing in digital cat nation you know, where you put digital voice pieces together so that you have us. So it doesn't sound like you have a sentence that goes together. You know, they were working it out at that time. And apparently I sounded like somebody who had originally started banking her voice pieces. And so they needed somebody to to take over. And so that was a, a lucky break. So, yeah, I was, I was the first Siri voice on the GPS. And I remember that you told us when we got to talk about that, you would have to go in every couple of weeks and just read new addresses and strange words that just were not common. At In Your Ear, they built me a closet the size of a bookcase. They just put a tiny desk in there with a computer and I talked into a microphone all day long. And all I would say, like one, two, Three, you know, I do it up to how many numbers they needed, all of the airports, all of the street names in the country. And I had to do them three times. This is what Cat Nation is, so that it was Main Street going down, Main Street, Main Street. So three different inflections. So when they're putting the pieces together, it sounds normal. They just go in and get what they needed. I think I, under- I know what happened to the person who I replaced. I suspect. They went postal because it was just an incredibly hard job. Yeah. And the concentration required was was enormous. It doesn't sound hard, but it was. I'm whining. I'm sure it was. Yeah. Well, and now the machines do it all. I imagine it's all AI at this point. Yeah. So I know this show is primarily about screens and TV, and but I didn't want to miss your career. You've had a wonderful career and are continuing to have a career as a stage actor. Thank you, Jerry. And an author. What's coming up, either on stage or, or in print? I have a full-length play coming out in 2023, Chimborazo Hill, which the main event of the play does indeed take place on Chimborazo Hill in Richmond, Virginia, and it will be produced by Cadence. Footnote. Cadence Theater has been producing contemporary shows in Richmond since 2009. And is it a period piece or is it? 2008-ish. There was an event in 1966-ish on Chimborazo Hill that 
the play isn't about that event, but revolves around that event. Uh-huh. Will you be in it or just writing it? I, ju- I have not. Did you been write yourself a part? <laughs> yes, of course I did. <laughs> and it just happens to be the lead. Um, no, <laughs> I haven't been invited to be in it. But given what happened in Lettuce and Lovage, where I had to walk to the end of the stage and say, ladies and gentlemen, you are experiencing live theater. Right. I would hate to have to do that again. Right, and right. I have a feeling if I were to try to be in this play, that might happen. What do you do for fun? I know you just got back from a little painting expedition in Mexico. I did. My sister and I went to Mexico for an intensive watercolor course. That's um, an interesting I combination, also, intensive and watercolor together. It don't seem... You know what? That is a good point because it was intense. It should be casual and fun. and Yeah. And, and there was some of that. You know, we had three hours of instruction in the morning and then in the afternoon we went on site somewhere to practice the lesson that we learned. Speaking of which, that's a question I always ask everybody. What are you watching? Mostly serials because I like to stay involved with something for a long time. I just streamed again, Kenneth Branagh on Wallander. I just loved that series and it had been 10 years since I'd seen it. And I'm thinking of uh, streaming Prime Suspect next. I've, oh my goodness. I haven't seen that in a couple Dame of decades. Dame either. Helen back on. Okay. Yeah. Well, so nothing new. You're living in the good old days. Oh, I guess the last one that I looked at all the way through was Yellowstone in 1883. I was a little involved. I really that. loved Yellowstone. I thought it was, it's, it's still got another season, I think, but I, I thought Yellowstone was great. And, and I said, you got all the way through 1883. I started it. And then they do that tricky thing that some of the streaming services do. If you want to see the rest of it, you got to join. I think that that show ended. I'm in SAG and dues paying members. So, you know, I get a code that I can stream all of the SAG award nominees, many of which are also Oscar award nominees. And so that's, that's a lovely perk for being in the union. So I was able to see a lot of those movies. So I forgot. Yeah. Well, my dear, we will all be watching this coming Sunday night to see Lou Hoover show up. Where are you going to be? What are you going to be? You'll be traveling Sunday. So what are you going to do? You're going to make time to sit down and watch it? Yeah. I'll bring my laptop. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been great to catch up. Thank you, Jerry. Irene showed up on The First Lady in Episode 2. Additional episodes are released weekly on Showtime. Our interview was done before it aired, so we couldn't actually discuss how our final scenes showed up. Visit the webpage on TV Jerry for links to the show, to Irene's site, and pictures. Coming soon. In theaters. Anais in Love, a comedy about a woman who falls in love with the wife of a man with whom she's having an affair. Is it obvious that it's French? And another same-sex romance, Firebird, is set during the Cold War about two men in the Estonian Air Force. Liam Neeson is back in action hero mode in Memory. Hatching, a young gymnast finds a strange egg which she nurtures until it hatches. We're all going to the World's Fair about another teen and a role-play game that goes bad. TV and streaming. On the 27th, on Netflix, Silverton Siege. Three young freedom fighters in South Africa take a bank hostage in exchange for the release of Nelson Mandela. On HBO, The Survivor. Ben Foster plays a fighter who's forced to fight other prisoners at Auschwitz before going on to America to fight Rocky Marciano. Directed by Barry Levinson. On the 28th, The Offer on Paramount Plus, a miniseries about the making of The Godfather. On the 28th, on Hulu, Under the Banner of Heaven, Andrew Garfield stars as a devout detective investigating a brutal murder in the Mormon community. And on the 29th on Netflix, the final episodes of Ozark and the final season of Grace and Frankie. 
Also on the 29th on Apple TV, The Shining Girls. Elizabeth Moss tracks a time-traveling serial killer with Jamie Bell as the villain. Moss also directed. On Showtime, I love that for you. Vanessa Bayer dreams of hosting her own shopping channel show, so she pretends her childhood cancer has returned. On May 1st, Ridley Road on PBS. A young Jewish woman moves to London to fight fascism in the 60s. Next week, we meet a designer on yet another political drama set in D.C. This is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. See you then. For more Sister, including literally thousands Thousands of of reviews, reviews, visit tvjerry.com. That's a wrap.